Hey, before we start this episode, just want to remind you that the Fearless Woman's Guide to Starting a Business is available everywhere that you like to buy books, and you can get it in paperback, Kindle, and even as an audiobook. I'll have links on where you can purchase in the podcast notes. Okay, back onto the show. Welcome to One Broken Mom. This is a podcast aimed at being able to open dialogues, real conversations with real people about mental health and parenting. We are recording today at The Dark Room, which is a location here in historic downtown Snohomish. I've got Sean Walker again, who's the sound engineer with Beehive. We've got Ashley in the corner, who's doing some video. Um, I want to remind everybody that One Broken Mom is not a family podcast. This is a adult, an adult show. Um, so adult language is used, um, because sometimes those words are more appropriate in conveying messages. Also, this isn't a therapy show. I'm not a therapist, so I'm not going to give you any medical advice. I'm not going to give you any legal advice. Um, I'm just going to share with you some topics and hopefully get you um, thinking about some things that you hadn't uh, considered before and how to improve yourself in a variety of ways. Um, Today, I am here with Liz Dixon. And um, Liz is a, a fellow neighbor and citizen here in Snohomish. And for folks that are from this area last winter, um, learned a lot about Liz and her family and probably one of the most unfortunate, unfortunate circumstances that there can be. Um, this is another episode that we're going to discuss suicide. We're going to talk about the effects on the family and the people that are involved in it. And we're going to talk about how it you know, kind of implicates and, and um, how it can work with a family and affect a family after the fact. Um, in 2016, the highest suicide rate was among adults between the ages of 45 and 54 years old. But the second highest rate occurred in those that were 85 years or older. And that demographic really only changed in 2005. Prior to that, the elderly, 75 years and older, in our country killed themselves at a higher rate than any of the other age groups. And these statistics are from the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, and these are based on the Centers for Disease Control. And their data is that they do on uh, fatal injuries. So this is the real numbers here. Liz? Hi. How are you? I'm doing good. Good. So, um... Introduce your dad to us. Okay. Well, my dad was Henry John Eisen Gronewald. Uh, he grew up in this area his whole life, actually out in Salton on a dairy farm. Um, he was one of five children. He was kind of what we like to call a freak accident at the end because um, he was born 12 years after his closest sibling. So he basically had like six parents. They all just loved him dearly and spoiled him rotten. And he grew up on the farm and um, he went to college and got his um, bachelor's degree in agriculture and then went off and got his master's degree at Bethel College in uh, Minnesota, which is where I was born um, in theology. So um, 
yeah, he grew up in this area. His favorite thing that he loved around here was um, his community and his people. And he loved everybody and being kind to everybody and um, treating everybody as they, though they had value. So, so let's, um, let's talk about why we're talking about him today. Yeah. Um, tell me what happened with your dad. So um, on December 11th, I got a call from my uncle that my dad had gone missing. Um, he just walked out the front door and said that he couldn't take it anymore. And this was from his um, wife at the time. And I got the call about noon. And so um, I was really close to my dad. I spoke to him every day. Um, he was always you know, writing me letters. He was really proud. He worked at the Snohomish uh, post office, really proud that he could mail a letter and have it delivered in one day to his friends and family. Um, so yeah, he went missing and, um, I, uh, it was a real big shock for me because, you know, his brother was upset about it. Everybody was like, where would he go? He never did that. Um, I mean, you know, growing up with him, he would get angry, take a walk, come back five, 10 minutes later, but it was never like he had been missing for two and a half hours by the time I found out. And I really thought we'd find him walking down the Centennial Trail, pissed off, some about that or anything. Anyway, so yeah, um, but uh, from what we I gathered from his wife and then his post his job he had walked off the job because something there was something that happened he dropped some mail was really stressed out and we all knew that he had a really hard time at work his most recent boss the last three years he called him a tyrant he was really hard on my dad and my dad is a very sweet soft man so. Um, yeah, so he walked off, and he left, and then that's when we started searching for him because I really truly believed in like my heart and soul that he could have never you know, jumped off a bridge or gone and killed himself. One, because I thought he was kind of a chicken, and two, um, he, his religious the, his religious was like the foundation of who he was, and that is a sin, right? So, um, this was quite a shock to find out about all this. Um, right. And then I think, uh, how long did it take before this got really serious for you guys with the search of, you know, your this two got hours? really serious, um, for us probably the next day. Cause I thought for sure we'd find him within a half hour. Like, you know, people get older, maybe you just got stressed out, you know, then mm-hmm. just took a walk and then I don't know. You know, Alzheimer's comes out in all different ways. I mean, he wasn't that old. He was only 63, but I was like, you know, or maybe he found somebody and was talking mm-hmm. at a place and it wasn't a big deal because he knew everybody in town. Mm-hmm. Everybody knew him, as you can tell from the the community outreach that mm-hmm. popped back. So, um, but yeah, it became very serious. And my hardest thing was um, because his wife had said that he may have committed suicide the police and search and rescue didn't take it as serious. And that was very frustrating for me because in my mind, he could have never done that. But even if he could have, he's still a human being and he has to be found. Right. Right. I mean, but they would say to me, um, you know, suicide isn't against the law. He's a grown man. He can do what he wants. And so I just feel that, um, They it, they wrote it off. It wasn't as important to them right. as it was to like me, and that's why I was really happy to have the whole community come together and help me get him 
on the news and get him to be a part or to be seen basically. Right. Cause he wasn't cause it, I mean, Oh, it's just another old guy that committed suicide, which is terrible. Yeah. And know? so they said the reasoning was because it's just not against the law. It's not against the law. Um, the reason the media didn't cover it is because, um, a lot of people go missing every day and that's just a fact. It's just the way it is. And they can't cover everything. And uh, Q13 Fox actually said to me on the phone that there was not enough interest around this case, which broke my heart because he was a huge pillar of this community. I mean, I started that Facebook page and there's over 5,000 people in it. I mean, how much more interest do you need? I don't understand. Yeah. So um, it was a really big struggle to get people to see and to make people pay attention, Um, mostly the people that were helping us. So I was really happy to have a lot of civilian help. I mean, people that didn't even know us, uh, heard about this and heard about what type of man he was and how kind he was and sweet and always smiling. Even in all the pictures, you can see he's smiling away. Like Mm -hmm. he's not this angry man. And if you look on that, uh, Facebook page, there's not one negative word about him. And that's just who he was. He was this kind, sweet person. And, um, so that was really, really frustrating um, for me with uh, the police department. I do now realize that there was a – I know with the media companies there was a lack of interest, but I think as far as the police department goes and the detectives, when it got moved to major crimes, there's a lack of resources mm-hmm. there. And so that's something I really would like to help. Yeah. So um, it was December 11th, mm-hmm. and then – um, we and I actually participated with this. Like yes. we, you know, we scoured the community. We broke up blocks. We walked every inch of and mile of the round here. Um, no sight of him. Search and rescue went through the river twice. Is that right? To yes. try to just in case he At went the in beginning there. part. Yeah. So um, and still no sign of him. And then and then what happened? Like how long was it before you got the phone call finally? Uh, it was uh, January 30th is when they found his body in Degmar's Landing over there in Everett. Um, and the reason that they knew it was him because his body was unrecognizable. Um, they actually really, they didn't not let us see it, but they really strongly recommended against us for further trauma on the family. Mm-hmm. Um, but he still had his badge hanging around his neck that said Henry Groneveld from the post office. And he was wearing his um, postal pants. So, yeah. Anyway, um, yeah. And we, you know, we had that big search on the 23rd of December, which Mm -hmm. was amazing that people came out right before Christmas. Mm -hmm. We had over like 200 people there Mm -hmm. um, just helping. Um, And, but we can, we hired a private detective um, to pull information in case. And there was a little glimmer of hope there because it showed that he owned a Harley. So I thought maybe he just <laughs> there drove was this wild off. side you didn't yeah, know about this him. Wild like, side maybe that he did I didn't know. Yeah. I really, really hope that's what it was. But yeah, when we got the call on January thirtieth, um, yeah, it just um, it was really. I still, it's really unbelievable mm-hmm. for the man he was, the father he was, the grandpa he was. Um, it's just hard to believe, you know. But yeah. But, um, so we, you know, you and I had talked and this is kind of the, the, I would say it's the problem with podcasting is that we have some really great talks and there's like no microphones on. So, right. um, so we've already, I, I know that part will, will feel like we're rehashing some of this. Um, That's fine. but you know, 
something was there, right? I mean, it, it's unbelievable as it seems for him to be able to do that. Um, somehow there was the capacity in him that came from somewhere. And we talked a little bit about what life was like growing up, you know, with him. So let's talk a little bit about what you had said. Yeah. So, um, growing up with him and my parents, um, we were homeschooled. Um, we were part of a Baptist church, really religious. Um, and my parents, you know, including my dad, they really felt that, well, I think it was a lot of my, my mother, they really felt that the world was kind of a scary place and bad and you should stay away from it. So, you know, like, uh, Public school was not a good environment to put your children in. Um, you can't go trick-or-treating because the devil, somebody will put razor blades in your candy or the devil will get you, I don't know, stuff. Whatever. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we were really, really um, sheltered as children, and we didn't even have TV. Like, I always tell people we lived kind of like Amish people. My dad worked really hard. He worked three jobs at the time. and um, But it was really kind of a fear-based environment that we grew up in. Um, you know, my mom always stockpile for, I don't know what, wasn't there like Y2K, something like that. Right, yeah, that there was, was always some end of the world thing happening and she was stockpiling for all that. And you know, it's just how it goes. Well, when they got divorced, that's when everything changed. And I was about 14. Um, they really, uh, they were so busy dealing with their own stuff that they couldn't, deal with me and my siblings, which I have two sisters and a handicapped little brother. Um, and so I became very, the person taking care of them for that. Um, I remember one time actually, uh, I missed a lot of first period and because we all got thrown into public school at that time, because, you know, my mom is now a single mom. My dad is working. I mean, there's nobody there to homeschool us because my mom needed to work. And, um, I remember I was missing so many first period classes because I was getting my siblings off to school and my brother is handicapped, like can't do it by himself. And, um, they had a, the principal had a big meeting with me and my parents were supposed to be there because I had so many truancies and I was the only one there. (laughs) So, and I know my dad was working, you know, he was always working full time. He really, he, his ally and, or I don't know, what do you call it? loyalty was like work, provide, work, provide for your family. And so, you know, and also I don't even know if he knew about the meeting when they separated, like nobody was communicating between each other or anything. So it was not cool anyway. But, um, yeah, there was a lot of stress. I mean, when you have a a handicapped child, I'm sure a lot of people know that that it's hard on a relationship. It changes people. Yeah. Um, and so they, they were still parenting my brother together until my dad um, committed suicide. So, um, because um, he'll never be like out on his own or anything. So. Do you know anything about what life was like for your dad growing up? Um, from what I know, like it was always really happy. We actually got to grow up on the farm for, we got to live there for six years out in Sultan. My dad grew up there. He worked on the farm. Like from what I can tell, it was amazing. He always talked about it, how great it was. Um, because he was essentially like spoiled rotten, you know, and loved dearly by all of his siblings and his parents who were much older. What happened was his mom started going through, they call it, you know, the change of life and Mm -hmm. she got pregnant with him. And so it was, uh, um, needless to say a shock Mm -hmm. anyway. And so 
yeah, he grew up there. He was, his brother was like the Cub Scout leader and he was in Cub Scouts. Um, his sisters took him everywhere with them. They used to take, um, they'd jump in the car and go for like three months and tour, um, the United States mm. in the car. They went back to Germany lots of time. Cause, um, my dad is the only one that was born here. Everybody else was born in Germany. Okay. So they immigrated over here during a war, I think. Oh, <laughs> one of them. One of them. <laughs> yes. So they came over here and they bought the land dairy farm and then they just all worked on it. And I got to live there and I'll tell you when I lived there, my parents, even though we lived in a little single wide mobile home with orange shade carpet, it <laughs> was awesome. Yeah. You know, we got to run around on the farm, help the milkers. Like it was a lot of fun. So, um, yeah, growing up for my dad, I know that he was kind of a more nervous kid. He would tell me that he was like, when I was a kid, I used to get upset stomachs and he still had that. Like if I said something, cause I'm, I'll talk about anything. Mm-hmm. That's, I'm his kid that will do that. I will, I used to make him nervous and he would cough. <coughs> oh, Liz, oh, oh, you know, like, Hey, come over for dinner. Can you go grab a case, you know, a six pack of beer? Oh, 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 I can't do that. Oh, somebody might see me. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> okay, dad. So, yeah. So, and your dad's personality, um, making it seem unbelievable that he would do this, that he was just, just endearing and sweet. And, so happy, yeah. would, would help anybody, bend over backwards for anybody, always there at every function that he could go to. He was also like the grandparent that was like, hey, can I pick up your kids and take them to Lego Lab, at, you know, or pick them up and take them to Cubbies or... Uh, let's go out for ice cream. We used to take them to Top It Yogurt all the time. And um, yeah, it, you know, like my mom doesn't do that. I, I mean, he cares about all the people around him, even every one of his male customers. We had more male customers come and help us because he walked right up the first day they moved in and said, hi, my name's Henry. I'm going to be serving you from now on. You know, he was unhappy. Like he was always happy. And nice to people. I do think that he didn't always stand up for himself when people, you know, people can be mean, no matter how happy you are, there's always somebody out there that's going to be mean. That hates your happiness. Yes. They hate it. Yeah. And so I don't think he managed that very well. And I know him and my mom never had a very good working relationship after they got divorced. My mom can be hard. Um, and I know he was always just, he's more of the person to kind of, um, just let it go or say he was letting it go. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty now. I mean, I see things leading up probably the last six months. Mm-hmm. He had been losing weight. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was going to the doctor to try to figure out what it was. But in his medical records, it said that he was really stressed out, like anxiety. Um, they had given him some medication to try to help. He had tried some, you know, he went and saw like a natural path, tried that route, tried to change his diet. But he he was saying, like, I'd say, how are you today? Not good. And that wasn't normal. And I see that now. But, like, when you're there, they're your parent. They're mm-hmm. always going to be fine, right? You know? I don't I don't know. So was there any um, – because part of this, you know, when we talked about this, part of this this episode and these other episodes are – Unfortunately, hindsight is twenty twenty, right. and you know, like I like I say, this isn't about judging, like what you could have done better or what should right. have been done differently. The point is, is that you now have the the benefit to be able to help somebody else that's listening to this. Um, and aside from that change in six months, when you look back, 
Is there anything else that you could have seen that maybe another family, if they're starting to witness something like this that's going on in their family, that they should you know, maybe look out for in a parent or a grandparent or something like that? My, my thing that I'm trying to do now is reach out. Don't like reach out. You know, we all affect each other, right? We're all like connected in some, you know, network of people, a smile, a high, you know, if you see somebody that isn't themselves or not being themselves, because after this, a few of his customers came up and said, yeah, I talked to Henry in the last couple of weeks. He just, he didn't seem like himself. He wasn't happy. And um, his wife also told us several things after the fact that was happening at home that like we wouldn't know, but nobody is talking about it Mm -hmm. because for fear of what they look like or just brush it off. He's having a bad day. Like reach out, touch their shoulders, say, are you okay? Is there anything I can help you with? Do you want to go out for coffee? You know, kindness or writing a note. That's what I'm doing with my letters for Henry. Write a note and say, you are awesome. I hope you are having a good day. You deserve a good day. Mm -hmm. I mean, just little things like that. That's my way because I feel like, you know, I was saying, are you okay? But when you're so close, like, I don't know, my dad kind of spread himself very thin with everybody. And I feel like if more people, if he knew how many people actually cared, it would have been different. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, if you have your one daughter going, hey, dad, you want to go out for dinner? Hey, dad, you know, like. It's not enough. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. I accept that, you know. Um, But, you know, because he wasn't, he didn't have the greatest relationship with my sister, one of my sisters, and um, not with my mother. And, you know, those are hard. And then it's a struggle when you're in a second marriage and you still have a handicapped child that you have to parent with. Mm -hmm. It's all hard. And I just, yeah, I, I say reach out. And be there for that person. And it doesn't have to be this grand big thing. Because so many people are afraid. I don't know. Um, I've been talking a lot about this. It's called like loving fearlessly. Because I think people are afraid Mm -hmm. to appreciate somebody. Or or say something. Like it's weird. You know. And um, uh, I actually have uh, somebody that went to uh, the PTA. Went to my dad's church. um, That I worked on the PTA with at our school. And... uh, she, my, when my dad figured that out, he was the first one to say hi to her every time. And that can be, you know, alarming when people that you don't know are like, hi, how are you? You know, blah, blah, blah. That's who my dad was anyway. And, um, she later told me actually September. So a few months before my dad went missing, she goes, I wish there were more people in the world like your dad. He just runs up to me at the grocery store and says, hi. And she only knew me, mm-hmm. you know? And so but she became his friend too. Yes. Because of that. They yeah. became friends because of that, because he was, he loved people fearlessly in my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that we should all try to do that. Appreciate people fearlessly, not be afraid of what somebody thinks or somebody's going to do or that too much might be expected of you, you know? Mm-hmm. So, well, so we were, we were talking about this and I know that when I originally you know, approached you to talk about and, and sharing the story of you and your dad um, with everybody um, because of the, you know, the nature of it. After sitting here with you, though, as we were preparing to, fil- uh, to film, you know, record this, this podcast, 
um, we started to talk about you and, um, and because, you know, my purpose is through, you know, through the, the one broken mom is to tell stories of broken moms. Um, you know, you became a broken mom through this whole process here. And, um, and I think there's a lot to actually share about your experience with this. Cause I remember, um, coming into McDonald's, which was, you know, ground central for the search for a month and you were, you know, and it was winter. So I just remember seeing you in a stocking cap and your coat in the <laughs> corner and people just running in and out. And, and one time when I checked in with you to see how things were going and, and what was happening, your husband came in with your son and, um, I remember him coming up to you and just, you know, you making it, you know, you, you were in this position of, I am now the commander of the search for my dad who's missing and I'm scared. And this is, you know, sickening to my stomach. And then my son who just wanted hugs and, you know, and having that, and I could see that on you, I could see it on your, you know, your, your son's face. Um, let's talk about, you know, what it was like to be, to mom through something like that and, and what you learned about yourself and what to do differently, you know, moving forward. Yes. Um, so yes, I became non-existent as a parent for especially the first month. It consumed me because um, you know my dad was my friend and I loved him dearly. And this this couldn't have happened. Why would this happen? You know he was like really my he was very supportive of me and my family. Um, and so as far as parenting, I really became non-existent and I was very involved as a parent because growing up, my parents weren't as involved. Dad was always working and my mom had her stuff going on and taking care of my brother is hard. So I was like, I am going to be in it and know what's going on with my kids, right? And be in it. So I'm president of the PTA. I'm, you know, volunteering every day, hanging out at school. My kids are like, uh, go away. (laughs) I just stopped. I mean, I wasn't making dinner. I wasn't making sure they had lunch. I, and um, I couldn't see. I didn't have the tools to deal with that. Do you know what I mean? I couldn't see what I was doing to them. And I expected my whole family just to shut up. This is a big deal. We've got to, you know, but it really affects kids. Like, they wouldn't, I mean, my daughter started forging my signature on her minutes because she was too she knew I was too sad to sign my name or she didn't even want to ask me. Mm-hmm. So like she just, her minutes for reading, you know? And so that all dropped. And when you're not carrying that bleeds onto your kids, like they're not caring about their schoolwork, their friends, stuff like that. And it's so stressful at home. You know, it's like a, I don't know, like a war zone, you know, mm-hmm. like, you're walking around on eggshells and not that I had outbursts or anything like that, but I was sad, like profoundly sad and it consumed me. And so it took about till April when we took a vacation and I finally opened my eyes and I could see my kids again, like, oh my gosh, how did this affect them? Cause they were really close to my dad, mm-hmm. grandpa Henry, my oldest son is named Cole Henry. Like I didn't even give them space to have their feelings you know, and, um, so I now realize, you know, that they need their space. We need to talk about it with them The You know, what is done is done. You know, my dad is gone and it's really sad, but we have to pick up the pieces of our lives and move forward. I can't sit in this horrible grief for the sake of my children. You know, um, they need me to be able to, um, move on, but that involves self-care, right? So I do acupuncture. I see a counselor. Um, 
I do things like this where we talk about it because I think it's so important that you get out there and talk about it because people don't want to talk about this kind of stuff or how it affects you as a mother because you're supposed to be like super mom all the time, right? Right. We all are. We're all supposed to be able to, I always call it the domestic goddess gene. I don't have it (laughs) at all, but I certainly try, right? And, but really my, my whole point is I love my children dearly and, um, I want the best for them. I want them to be the best little people they can be. Because they're people. They're not, everybody's like, kids, oh, they're people. They're like people like you and me. They have feelings. Things affect them. And they don't have as many tools as we do in our box to be able to manage, right? So you have to help them. So I see now a lot of things. We've had a few issues with my daughter at school because she, both my kids are very studious, um, work really hard. My daughter actually has an IEP, so she struggles, but she always is trying, right? Mm -hmm. She stopped trying. And it was because she didn't have the support of me going, hey, how's it going? You need help with this? What's going on? It became so hard and, uh, you know, so emotionally hard at home. She just couldn't do it. Yeah. And I didn't and see it. And how old is she? She is 10. Okay. So you have three kids, right? Yes, I have three. Okay. She is in fourth grade. And then I have two sons. One is going to be in kindergarten in September and the other one is going into sixth grade. So, um, and, uh, my oldest is very, um, don't cause any problems, always help, like always be there. The oldest kid. Right. <laughs> and so that's another thing. Like he's constantly like, I'm sorry. Are you okay? Are you sorry? And I'm like, whoa, it's not your job to care. Mm-hmm. Like I'm taking care of you, but it's hard. And so we have to work together. So that's what we're working on together is like, I'm trying, I'm, we're starting to eat dinners together at the table and pulling our family back together. Cause it really does traumatize a family things like this and you don't even realize that it's going on when you're in it mm-hmm. you're like we're a good family we're fine everything's gonna be fine and it isn't yeah you know we have support from everybody i mean this the the kids his principal even came to the memorial mm-hmm. he showed up the first day and was like i got lunches for your kids like the support is amazing but in the family unit it has to be there too you know yep. Yep, absolutely. And I know that from experience too, that it's helpful when there's a community that comes in around children, but kids always need, you know, even if they're not there, mom, mom, you know, and I'm, and I'm kind of the person who's like, it's mom, you know, dads, they're important. We all know that piece of it and stuff like that. But if mom is not there around or unsteady or uncertain, it freaks the shit out of kids like to their core. Yes. Yeah. Um, and that was something growing up. So me and my mom have always had a kind of a hard time, a hard relationship. Um, and it's not for lack of trying on both of our ends. It's mm-hmm. just, I actually really don't know why it doesn't work, but it doesn't. That's another episode. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> and so that is something that I wanted to try to fix going into being a parent. I actually really didn't want to become a parent. I was terrified. Like, it was not on my to-do list. <laughs> and then it just happened. But it was so cool. You know, the kids are so amazing and they're such cool people and um I love to know them inside and out and I I feel terrible for just dropping like this you know for my for my dad's situation um because even having these tough conversations with them it's hard like what happened to grandpa like when I told them so everybody at the school already knew when we found his body because um 
some of the ladies on the PTA, their husbands were the detectives oh, on geez. it. So it's it's very in yeah. I- intertwined, right? So they all knew, and I said, you guys can't tell any of my kids. I got to tell them when they get home. So when they get home, I say, so they, they found Grandpa, and um, my daughter goes, oh, where was he? Thinking and he's alive. Yes. Right. And I just looked at her, and she goes, oh, dead. And I was like, yeah. And she was like, oh. And she gives me a hug. I'm sorry. And walks away. Like, I need to figure out, you know, how to talk to her about this better because that can't be it, right? Yeah. So, anyway. Yeah, it was, um, yeah. So, it's been a really big, big thing in our family. But we're starting to pick it back up and just being aware of it, like you said. You know, being aware of what happened and how to move forward and change things, do things different. And that's something I want to do different than my dad is. Um, um, he was so kind and so awesome, but also there's always negative people and people that aren't nice. Like he had a very terrible boss and, you know, other hard people in his life that he had to deal with. And um, you have to put up boundaries and say, no, I don't have to deal with you. Even if you are my boss, even if you are my family I don't have to. Mm-hmm. And so um, that's something I'm trying to change about myself to show my kids that you don't have to put up with negativity. Like, yes, be kind and be polite to everybody around you, but you are worth something. And that's what my dad believed. He believed everybody had a value, right? We're all val- valuable people. Nobody's better or less. He always said, Different folks, different strokes. Mm-hmm. So, like, nobody's better or worse. We're just different. We're all just different. And, um, but, like, you have to do self-care, take care of yourself. And so that's what I'm worrying, working on now, which it, it's been kind of a strain on my extended family because I'm not um, speaking very, a lot to um, my sisters and my mother um, just because, um I can't deal with negativity and we're all grieving differently, right? Right. Well, and you, because you had talked about a family life that was brought up around fear and scarcity. Yes, and, very, very much. And so it's, you know, you said, I'm not doing that anymore. Like, right. that's not my life. Yeah. That's not my life. I don't want, I will not live my life in fear. I will not raise my children in fear. The world is an amazing place. And yes, there are scary things. There are hard things. But you deal with it. You move on. You cannot, you have to live you know? And, um, I feel that the way that I was raised, it was very like, (gasps) you know, be scared of everything. And then pretty soon you'll die and go to heaven. Then you'll be okay. Right. That's great. But you can live now and still be okay. And it's great. Um, but, um, you know, with suicide, we talked about earlier, the, the mental health piece is such a big deal in my mind. Like I feel that mental health, my great grandpa always says like, you know, you would go fix your arm if it broke, go fix your head if it broke, you know, he always says that. And so I feel like a lot of people don't pay attention to that because we're all supposed to be these strong super moms and we're not going, wait a minute, whoa, I'm so messed up that I can't even feed my kids, you know? So that's why I had to like, you know, and um, going to support groups really helps me with being a child of suicide. Um, But I don't want that to define me. Right. Like that's not just who I am. Right. Yes, my dad committed suicide. It's a wound right now. You're you're healing. Right. right. But right. it isn't Liz. It isn't Liz. Liz right. isn't just you know a, who had a dad who committed suicide. A wonderful dad, a person you would unlikely see do this. You know, and I don't. 
not that I don't want to be identified. That is a piece of me. It's just, it's not the only piece of me. Mm-hmm. And so I really want to show my kids that, that like you can move on and, but talking about it is the biggest thing. And mm-hmm. so I was really grateful to you that you asked me to come and talk about this. Cause awesome. Thank you. I'm, this is a, this is a hard story that a lot of people, um, are uncomfortable hearing or yes. asking. Um, and I know that sometimes, you know, people don't want to, they don't want to broach the topic. And like you said, you know, you go to the grocery store and everybody gives you that, Oh, the sad you know, eyes, the sad eyes, I call you them know, the sad eyes. <laughs> right. Yeah. The sad eyes about everything. And, but yet probably don't want to ask how you're doing no. or how you're feeling or they're just like, yeah. And, yeah. um, or they avoid it cause it's too awkward. Right. And I, I think you should talk about it. Right. Like, that that's makes, why, that's what I am. I'm all about yeah. like, let's just make it really awkward for everybody. Right. So let's just get it over with here. I am really good at that too. Yeah. <laughs> Super good at it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and so one of the things um, that you're doing is Letters for Henry. Yes. So, um, and it was the Facebook group started off as the Search for Henry. Right. And then it morphed into Letters for Henry after your dad's body had been found. And so tell everybody what you're doing. Like, what is that legacy that you're carrying there? So my dad loved being a mailman. Like he dreamed about it as a child. Um, and all family vacations, we went and visited every post office in every town. I'm not joking. You gotta take a picture with a flag. It's like real. He, it was like his thing. He loved mail. I think it's genetic because I'm the same way. Like I have to check my mail every day. You know, to me, it's like a present. Even if it's a bill, you get to open something up. Right. It's exciting. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm not happy about bills. Yeah. <laughs> so um, he, uh, so that was something he did. So he would write to my cousin's kids, my cousin's, you know, his best friend's son. Like he wrote to everybody letters. He always called it his correspondence. I got to catch up on my correspondence. So I, for people that I see in the world or who have been kind to me or who are kind to somebody else or are just look like they need something. I write a letter to whoever they are. If I can get their, um, you know, address. If I don't have their address, I'll just give it to them when I see them. And I always stamp on it letters for Henry because it's like, I just want that person to know that they are cared for and they are seen. They -hmm. are seen. So, um, and that's what I'm doing personally. Everybody that wrote me a letter, everybody that helped in this situation, I have written thank you letters, like hundreds of thank you letters to all these people. And it, um, I hope that people know how grateful I am like for you coming and helping and giving your ideas on how to try to find this man and um, just the support. And so that's, that's what I'm doing. And so um, we've got a hashtag letters for Henry. There's a lot of other um, stampers and um, people that make cards on Instagram who have picked this up and are sending out, they call it like um, mailing kindness. Mm -hmm. And so it's really neat. And I'm doing that for my dad because he loved mail and he loved the post office so much. So I feel like that's a way, and I know that he had a hard boss, stuff like that, but he would be so upset if we like just disowned the post office, you know, because that was just one person, you know, it wasn't the entity as a whole. And so, um, yeah, so that's what I'm doing. I just, you know, every week I send, you know, five to 10 letters to people just letting them know, Hi, I hope you're having a good day. You're awesome. And some like detail about what they've done in their life or whatever. So, right. And so the Facebook group is called Letters for Henry. Right? Yeah. Okay. And so people have posted like um, 
post offices they've gone to all over the world, actually, like in Europe, um, Switzerland, Australia. So really cool. And then also the letters that they mail, they'll take pictures of some of the letters they mail and um, just appreciating somebody or like they gave the mail carrier a thank you, you know, mm-hmm. something like that. Just making it be aware. It's been really, really cool. Cool. Cause yeah, you're right. You, your dad by all appearances was fine. Right. Yeah. And that one gesture reaching out at the right time at the right moment can honestly be a matter of life and death yeah. for somebody. Yeah, it can. And I think that, um, I think my dad tried so hard to reach out to so many people and just didn't get the response back. Cause like, I think that, like I said before, you know, we need to show each other that we do care and we do appreciate each other, but we do, we get so stuck in our, like I did with my kids, so stuck in our own little thing that we don't see the people around us. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying give them your whole self, just Mm -hmm. a smile or a hi, Mm -hmm. like my dad did to that PTA lady I worked with, you know, just said, hi, how are you? So it doesn't have to be a big thing. So, um, moving forward, how do you think you go on from something like this? Oh man, it's a day by day process. I got really involved with Clahaya Days here in town, um, because they actually donate money to search and rescue in the area. And so I thought that, um, I also got involved in Kiwanis because they also work with children. And so I really want to give back to this community that my dad loves so much and also gave to trying to find him and through that. So that's kind of part of my healing, um, moving forward with my family. Um, I am working very hard to be present. So like present with them in all moments, all times, and you can't do it in all things, but just being aware that I need to be there more, see them more, and this is what matters. Mm-hmm. So, um, and even if I'm having a hard time, okay, fix it. You are the grown up, go fix it. Mm-hmm. It's hard to put yourself in that position, though. It really is. Um, so, but with this thing with my dad, I, I feel that um, I just, I honestly just don't think he knew how mm-hmm. to f- fix it or take care of his brain. Right. And I, going on. one might say, I mean, just sitting here thinking about it is, you know, it's like you're trying to find a silver lining in whatever it is. Um, you know, I remember meeting you and you, you described yourself as I'm just the PTA mom. I, I don't even know what I'm doing like day yeah. one. And I have to tell you, Liz, you changed a lot. And I know I wrote to you and told you this, that your transformation, having to have to go through something like this was hard. But I think, you know, from looking on the outside, I, it, you're improved, Right. You know, yeah. there's a piece of you that grew and developed and um, and probably revealed a lot more about yourself than you maybe gave yourself credit for before. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like it opened up um, a lot. It, it really. Yeah. It made me aware of a lot that I could accomplish a lot. But it also taught me when to let go mm-hmm. of things because sitting at McDonald's, leaving that place was very hard for me because it was like I was giving up on my dad, mm-hmm. my sweet little dad who nobody you know nobody saw nobody was there for it at that moment right right in that moment which all these people have seen him and love him and I know that but in that moment it was like it was only me and so letting go was huge for me to say okay there's nothing more I can do I have literally gone as far as I can for this person in my life. I just hope that he knows I care or knew that I cared. Right. 
So yeah, I've learned a lot and changed a lot. And, um, I've actually was able to help some people, um, uh, people have reached out to me with searches of their own little things that I did, little things that I learned not to do. Um, you know, verbiage to use when you're talking to people or talking to the media. Um, so I've been able to help some people and I did another podcast, um, with the vanished and she said that our story changed things for her because she has, she has to pick and choose who she covers. Mm -hmm. Um, and because of ours, like she realizes that all people need to be covered. You know, it doesn't matter what every person deserves, um, deserves to be cared for and deserves and we're all people we're all humans we deserve to be found we deserve um to be you know searched for or whatever Mm -hmm. it is so um yeah i have definitely changed learned a lot but i don't want to lose that happy piece of me like oh yeah right you know i want because i was so happy i love this world and i love people and i love all this stuff and something like this can Take that away. And so that's something I'm focusing on keeping. So I'm grateful that you took the time to do this with me today. Oh, yeah. I, I appreciate I really you am. asking. I, yeah, anything you need. Um, I just, the conversation needs to be out there and I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, and you're continuing to be a part of the community. Um, and, you know, your dad, I know, is so proud of that. So thank you. Yeah. So thank you very much, Liz. Um, If anybody's interested in participating in Letters for Henry, you can find it on Facebook. And if you are in crisis or you know somebody that's in crisis, there is the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. And that phone number is 1-800-273-TALK. That, again, is 1-800-273-8255. Or if you are more handy with your phone and you prefer to text, you can text the crisis text line by texting the word TALK, T-A-L-K, to 741-741. Thank you. Thank you.